When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Well, certainly for the first six years of Momsnet, there were, there were three of us really working earning considerably less than the tax threshold. People were basically doing it on a promise of the future. Hello, this is Owen Bennett-Jones. Welcome to Make or Break, where I speak to remarkable people who reached a moment where they just had to make up their mind. With guests spanning from across the business world, we'll unpack those critical moments and explore how these CEOs and entrepreneurs managed uncertainty. My guest this week is Justine Roberts, the founder of the leading parents forum, Mumsnet. Since its inception in 1999, Mumsnet has become the UK's busiest and most influential network for parents. It is incredible how you do, you know, you can actually make headlines, you can change things, you know, politicians aren't listening to you. Yeah. Every month, 10 million users go to the site for advice about everything from travelling with toddlers to coping with bereavement. The rise of Mumsnet was by no means an easy feat. Like many startups which survived the gold rush days of the early internet, Justine Roberts' story is one of perseverance. Alongside her co-founder, Carrie Longton, she created a resource for parents, and yet, even after six years, they were still struggling to attract advertisers and were operating on a shoestring. Mumsnet grew steadily and organically, weathering the burst of the dot-com bubble and the financial crash of 2008. And today, the forum is worth millions and reaching more people than ever. Justine Roberts demonstrated a remarkable early insight into the potential of the internet, but there was no guarantee that she would find financial success. So what motivated someone to keep going through that level of uncertainty? And what was it like when the gamble paid off? Justine Roberts, welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me. And let's let's just go back to the beginning and, and how you came up with this idea for Mumsnet. What were you, what were you thinking? Well, I was actually on holiday um, with my nearly one-year-old twins. Uh, and we uh, we turned out we picked uh, the wrong destination, the wrong resort, the wrong time zone. And frankly, I took the wrong children. <laughs> and it was an unmitigated disaster. Um, but it wasn't just a disaster for me. It was really a poor choice um, for everyone who ended up there. Um, all the parents were sitting around the pool bemoaning uh, their chaotic choice of venue. And it just occurred to me that if I could have only have asked someone about this before I left, someone who perhaps knew a bit more about family holidays than I did, 
I may uh, I may have saved myself a lot of expense and trouble. And it wasn't, of course, just about holidays. It was about everything to do with parenting, for which we are not at all trained, but it is quite an important thing. Um, so I, so there was this thing called the internet that had just sort of popped up in our lives. And it, uh, it seemed to be the perfect way to tap into a font of wisdom on all things that um, parents needed to know about. And it, that was really the principle behind Mumsnet and remains so to this day, which is tapping into the wisdom of people who've been there and done that. Okay, and, and so when you had that light bulb moment, did you discuss it with anyone or were you just sort of thinking, hmm, this, I, I could do something about this or did you... Yeah, no, it was me. Me and my husband were sitting around the pool and we've sort of then talked to a few other parents around the pool and said, wouldn't this be useful? And I think what was, uh, what, where I was lucky was that it, I was at a time in my life where it sort of felt viable to drop everything and go after an idea. Uh, it was, it was the time in the world of the internet when everyone was having ideas, but not everyone, um, was able to do it. And I, I just, I'd stopped work after 10 years in investment banking. I felt I'd done my time. I'd earned a little bit of cash. Um, so I, I was free to take a risk, as it were. And I wanted a new direction because I was a mother and I, um, in theory, wanted a job which was a bit more flexible. Although, as any small business owner will tell you, there's not much flexibility, actually. There's just a lot of hard hours. So those were all sort of um, factors that enabled me to give this thing a go. So you, you were setting up a, a, a site where people could ask the question, where is a good place to take two one-year-old twins and get a sensible answer from someone else who had had two one-year-old twins? That was the basic point. Yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, the only other major factor, I think, was that we chose to allow people to be anonymous, um, which was now, I think of it, quite a critical factor in, in mum's nets development and success, because I think that the fact is you get really truthful answers and, and problems shared on a site where people don't have to be the, you know, don't have to reveal their true identity. So what to do about if if you've really gone off your middle child or you can't stand your mother-in-law or your boss or your neighbour, you can't really do that on Facebook. So, so there's a truth in what people say and that makes it all the more useful, I think. I'm a bit surprised you say that that works so well for you because when you look at Twitter, the anonymous accounts are full of such horrendous sort of aggression and nastiness. You've not faced that. Sometimes people are occasionally more direct and robust uh, in under a pseudonym than they would be under their real name. However, you know, we became a community. And so the pseudonyms had real, you know, the, uh, personalities attached to them. And the community pushed back so hard on that kind of bad behaviour. And quite frankly, we always invested in pretty strong moderation, unlike some of the bigger platforms, um, to root out anyone who we thought was behaving in a trollish or nefarious manner. So, um, so yes, I can, I can see what you're saying. That, and there is often um, a, quite a bias against anonymity. And big platforms like Facebook talk very strongly about the dangers of it. But that's because they want, they want you to be yourself and collect all your data and always have. On Mumsnet, what you get is the unvarnished truth from people. And we have to, you know, work quite hard to stop people behaving 
worse than they would do if they used their real name. But I mean, it's a it's a community wide effort, and the community also works quite hard to keep the place civil. That's very interesting. That it suggests that if you moderate a lot, you can build a, a quite respectful culture. Yeah, and I think it's about always um, hammering home what the point is and what the ethos is. So we very strongly have always said our mission is to make parents' lives easier. And we believe we can do that by allowing people to be to share honest problems and solutions. It's interesting there was a commercial aspect to that. that we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute, maybe, that Facebook you know, could make more money because it knew who everyone was, so you, and you didn't, so presumably you made less. But anyway... <laughs> a lot less, sorry. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. uh, but in terms of how this progressed you know you you've 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 come back from your holiday you've you've put this thing up saying here's here's a forum for advice shared advice what sort of reaction did you see uh, very little initially as you can imagine um and i spent quite a long time um under various pseudonyms myself answering my own questions you're saying that you would post a question like i don't know how do you deal with teething or whatever and 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 then you'd answer it with, under a different name. Yes, and often under several different names, I'd give multiple <laughs> answers. And the good, the good thing was I had many, many questions and I was very, very confused about the answers. <laughs> so I was able to, to come up with a lot of material. Um, and that was, you know, that was, that was the first month or two. But eventually, well, I managed to, to get to... to um, write a column in the Times, uh, which was called The Diary of a Dotcom Startup. And that sort of began to get us some more users. We also went around locally and talked to local, you know, parenting groups and one o'clock clubs and things like that. And then, you know, suddenly a few more people appeared. And, and so I remember a good friend of mine ran me up probably about three months into Mum's Net's journey, and she she was pregnant, and she said, I'm having these palpitations. Do you know anything about this? Because I'd been pregnant, so she I was a natural person to ask. And I said, well, I do, actually, but I'll only answer you if you ask the question on Mum's Net. And I felt a bit guilty and rushed on um, to answer her question, and lo and behold, two other people had got there first. And at that point, I knew, OK, this is actually... Word is spreading. There, there is life in this thing, and perhaps I don't need to ask and answer quite so many questions <laughs> anymore myself. And, and, and then, how did how quickly did word spread actually? Well, uh, yeah. Once we had the Times column going, it, it 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 did mushroom a bit, and it was by word of mouth. So even to this day, uh, I think the only money we have spent on marketing Mumsnet. Um, was a £100 ad I took out in Time Out Kids, uh, which got me, I think, pretty much no users. So I didn't do that again. Well, do you think looking back on it, had you had you, you know, had more money available and you had spent it on marketing, that it would have worked, yeah, you'd have grown more quickly? Or, or do you think looking back on it, it was better not to market? I think we we probably could have grown more quickly because, you know, the reason people were staying once they found it was that it was useful. So I think we could have grown more quickly. The problem would have been we would have had a, a high cost base and, and there was no revenue. So it was the right model was a, was a bootstrap, shoestring, back of bedroom model because it was very difficult to, um, to monetize any of this traffic. 
So the business model was ahead of its time is a nice way of saying it was there wasn't one really that was was viable for the business when we first started. And this gets to, to, to your decision, which was to keep going when there seems to be no money coming in. Uh, so mm. just tell us how little money was coming in and how, you know, how many users you had and how little money you had. Well, so for about the first, well, certainly for the first six years of Momsnet, there were, there were three of us really working. I was quite full-time and then a couple of other people working part-time. The guy who, who was a friend of mine who built Momsnet, he was the techie. He never actually sort of joined full time till a lot later. And my friend from antenatal class, who um, who had been a TV producer, didn't want to go back to that. And we never, I mean, we, we earned little small amounts of ads, advertising sponsorship, but none that would ever lead us to pay any tax. Um, so no one was paying any income tax. So earning was considerably less than the tax threshold for about six years. Um, so that's kind of you can you can tell from that where our where our revenues were, um, and so yeah, people were basically doing it on a promise of the future that at some point the the traffic which kept on growing and was probably at that stage we were we were getting towards you know fifty thousand unique users or something like that and. Um, and quite a lot of page impressions because people spend and still do to this day they spend a lot of time on mum's net per visit but um but yeah no real way of of monetizing that because the ad model there just wasn't enough trust and it took really took um facebook and twitter to come on the scene before anyone had any trust at all from a commercial sense in the social web. So this makes me think you really were ahead of the game. I mean, are you basically saying that if you had that many people using your site today, you know, as you did in 2006, whatever it was, that you would be able to attract sufficient advertising to make money because advertisers have woken up to it? Yes, you would. You'd be able to make a sort of, um, I mean, obviously scale is really important to advertisers, but you certainly would be able to monetize that level of traffic to to support three wages at least, for sure, and and more. Um, so so yes, it was it was it was definitely um, commercially before its time. Of course, you know, you, I think we worry a bit too much about profitability. I mean, you know, how many years was it before Amazon made a profit? They weren't worried about that. They were just worried about growing the audience. But I'm not sure had we attracted venture capital or um, and we tried and failed, that they would have been as relaxed. Yes, well, I mean, that's one of the differences, isn't it, between the Amazons and Deliveroo's and so on, who are basically risking someone else's money. And mm. I get the impression you were pretty much risking your money. Uh, so yes. that gives it a certain edge, I guess. And, and, and so w- when you went to venture capital people and said, I think I've got something here, what, what, what did you get back? Well, we went... Uh, yeah, I was going out in early 2000 um, and the dot-com crash happened in the middle of 2000. So so I was looking to raise money just when the dot-com bubble burst. Um, so we, we did, before that, before the bubble burst, uh, I had a couple of conversations that got quite close to raising four and a half million pounds on the back of this idea, really, not much more than then. We didn't have a lot of users then. 
Um, the, the one that was closest was a, a, a venture guy who said, yeah, I like this idea. I'll, I'll, I'll back you, but I want someone else to run it. Uh, and that someone was actually a, a sort of 25-year-old man who had no children. <laughs> um, but he, you know, he obviously spoke all the right language about land grab and, and, and burn rates and stuff. So I wasn't actually ready to stop before I started. <laughs> so I didn't take that money, which was, as I say, it turned out to be a good thing. I think we would have, had we raised that money, we would have had a fancy office in Clerkenwell, lots of staff, and there still would have been no revenue model, I think, that would have worked. So we would have just had a very high um, monthly burn rate and we would have probably gone out of business and I would have had to lay all those people off. Um, so so I'm very grateful that that guy didn't think I would be capable of running this website. Have you met him since? No. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so the 4.5 million, I mean, I'm surprised in a way from the way you've described it that that kind of money was being talked about because you'd done this very, very cheaply. Uh, and the yes. problem wasn't that you needed 4.5 million. The problem was that you needed an income stream. No, but if you, rem- I don't know if you remember back then, but it was, there was such a kind of prevailing view that you had to be first mover. And if someone else, and you had to get, it was land grab. You had to grab the territory before someone other very well-funded startup would come and grab the territory off you. Um, and that was just the sort of numbers. I mean, I had a ridiculous business model that predicted revenue from affiliate business that I think we've probably only just about reached now, 20 years later. And so did everyone else, you know, because the idea was just to grab the territory to be as big as you could, as fast as you could to stop anyone else getting there before you. If you're enjoying listening to our podcast and feel inspired by some of the leaders you're hearing make tough decisions in make or break situations, you may want to equip yourself with the skills and capabilities to make your own difficult decisions. If so, the Open University's micro-credential Management of Uncertainty, Leadership, Decisions and Actions is designed for you. Visit openuniversity.co.uk forward slash management to find out more. Mumsnet's membership kept doubling and while the fiscal rewards weren't great, Justine Roberts felt she'd created something genuinely valuable for the community that had emerged. She'd often received messages from members attesting that Mumset had saved their lives. While advertisers were nervous about getting involved, users of the forum were happy to contribute financially to keep it all going. And with every check she received in the post, Justine Roberts became even more certain that anything so useful and engaging must at some point become commercially viable. As the site grew, Mumsnet became increasingly important in the cultural and political landscape with party leaders like David Cameron and Gordon Brown clamouring for a chance to court Mumsnet users through a series of pre-election web chats. I hope we cover most of the main areas, things like benefits, tax credits, the health service, questions about drugs, the BNP. I mean, it's an incredibly wide range. I really enjoyed doing it. Thank you for having me on. By 2010, Mumsnet was firmly in the mainstream, and with the rise of platforms like Facebook and Twitter, advertisers began to understand the value of what Justine Roberts had built. Finally, after years of scraping by, 
the money started rolling in. From around 2006 onwards, um, some very brave early brands started becoming interested in, in partnering with um, and engaging with people online. Um, so the switch, the big switch from print to digital, which was probably a 10-year process, um, began then. And so even though there were macro difficulties in the in the world's economies that switch meant that um you know we 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 were seeing revenue growth year on year pretty much irrespective of what we did <laughs> frankly um and we also had some big moments so um you know david cameron came on to do a mumsnet web chat in 2006 uh, and that sort of brought us to gave us a certain fame um, and the, the sort of era of the political web chat on Mumsnet was born. Uh, we were also sued, actually, by a well-known author um, they, who tried to shut the site down because she thought there were unpleasant things said about her. She was a parenting guru on the site. And it became a bit of a cause celeb for, for people um, who wanted to um, protect freedom of expression on the Internet and we got involved in the defamation laws and updating that for the internet age. So, and then in 2010, the election was dubbed the Mumsnet election because so many politicians wanted to come and use our platform to reach what they saw as a, a group of swing voters, namely women. Um, and uh, and so there were there were moments that um, of prevailing winds which sort of put Mumsnet into the sort of zeitgeist i suppose and 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 yeah so from i would say for, but the the key was that facebook and twitter arrived and and people started getting excited about web 2.0 and i remember looking at my partner saying we are web 2.0 <laughs> we're already that so we ought to be able to get some people to come and um advertise with us and and do other type of commercial activity we also got a book deal which was quite substantial um, and that allowed us to get an office and to hire people. So for people who don't know, just uh, how do you define Web 2.0? Well, yeah, I suppose what it is is um, the social web. So it's it's the beginning of social networks, um, of people talking to people and um, businesses engaging with people, real people, as opposed to just broadcasting at them. So, um, yeah, I think what, what, the, what happened was suddenly, you know, people talked about Web 1.0 as, as websites literally going up with information on and you could interact with them, but not interact with people on them. So it's the peer to peer nature of the Web, I suppose. So can I, can I ask you, you know, as a young woman going into investment banking, I mean, most people who go into investment banking want to make a lot of money at the end of the day. You know, it's prestigious, but it's also money. Uh, and you were now in a whole different place where you were thinking about community, uh, helping women who needed help, who appreciated help, enjoying the communication that was going on. Were you growing in a way? Were you changing? Hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I have to be honest, I probably was never that comfortable um, in investment banking. Um, I wanted to be my own boss, you know, e even though, as I said, I, I think it 
does devour quite a lot of hours. There's something about the guilt-free nature of saying at three o'clock in the afternoon, I'm going to go and watch Sports Day and no one's going to tell me otherwise and, and not having to do presenteeism. I mean, it was a bit of a revelation and possibly... Um, I, I feel many people who work in investment banking are miserable as sin, but what uh, one of the advantages to having children is it makes you take a step back and, and reevaluate sometimes. Um, and yeah, I could have carried on because obviously it was lucrative. And the danger is, even though you're miserable, it's very hard to leave those kind of working environments. But but uh, that I do say to people, you know, but the, it is an advantage actually of, of pregnancy and motherhood is that very often people get the chance to, to change direction. Uh, and we all know about the disadvantages of pregnancy and motherhood, particularly other, with regard to the gender pay gap. But, but this is an advantage, I think, that you, you, can, you can often make a decision that you probably should have made a lot earlier for your well-being. Um, so I, I'm not sure it necessarily changed my mum's there, but it allowed me to do something that I think was very, very meaningful to me that that had been completely absent in my first 10 years of, of employment. And so can you lay out for us just how much Mumsnet has grown since you began? Yeah, I mean, as I said, revenue was was pretty much, you know, um, well, it was definitely under, under £25,000 a year for the first six years. Um, now it's more like the £10 million. Pounds. Um, in terms of users, one of the benefits of, of sort of being so bereft and having to ask your users for um, for help is that um, it, we we became a different thing to a normal business. We were not we were not the the biz, They were not the customers. They were stakeholders, and so therefore it made us much more consultative about the approach we took towards when we did start getting advertisers towards those advertisers towards the the building of the site and the features we made. And that became, you know, uh, something actually quite magical and marvellous in itself, that it wasn't us and them, it was just all us. So we'd been bumbling along till 2006 before Mumsnet really became famous, growing gradually, organically, by word of mouth. Um, And in 2006, I would imagine we were at something like 25,000 users. And now we're at eight million. Um, so from it was sort of an exponential curve. It was going up very, very gradually to two thousand and six, and then it kind of shot exponentially. Right, and, and uh, I'm thinking you probably pay tax now, do you? <laughs> yeah, we pay a lot more tax than Amazon. That's for sure. <laughs> so as you look back, uh, what would your advice be? I mean, if if someone was uh, if you were talking to someone who was you know thinking of setting something up like this and you've you've got all this experience now what 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 have you learned from this i suppose i've learned that there's more than one way to grow a business you you know the prevailing model is you know that you 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 raise capital you spend quite a lot on um marketing or and uh, and growing big quick um, that prevailing model works for venture capital companies because they're prepared to accept failure in nine out of ten cases. Um, I'm not sure. For, for us, you know, that would have been the wrong model. It would have destroyed us. Um, and I think business owners 
shouldn't expect failure in nine out of 10 cases. I think they should, you know, growing a bit slower um, and a bit more within your means doesn't always mean uh, that you won't get there in the end. So the first thing, that's the first thing I've learned. You don't, you know, there are other ways to do it whether it be debt or bootstrapping or or just from a back bedroom for a few years you don't have to go out raise money and and if you don't if you don't prove the metrics within three years you know be bankrupt and and be finished if you could summarize just one single piece of advice what would that be yeah i suppose you know if you, if you're actually doing something purposeful ultimately it's probably going to 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 pay its way if you're meaningful to that many people, uh, you may be a little bit of, uh, you, you know, out of kilter with the prevailing mood or the prevailing winds. But if you can hang on in there um, and you can, yeah, you can be patient. If it's actually a, got a USP and useful, you'll find a way. Justine Roberts, thank you very much for telling us about Mumsnet. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks, Owen. This podcast is brought to you by Radio Wolfgang for Audi. It was presented by me, Owen Bennett-Jones, and it featured Justine Roberts. It was produced by John Joe Devlin, with editing by Eli Block. Sound design by Palama Kaufman. The executive producer was Ellie DiMartino, with support from The Open University. Listener.